Well, good morning and welcome to uh, Gig Harbor United Reformed Church and our morning worship service. Uh, my name is uh, Pastor Caleb Jansen. I am the church planting pastor here at Gig Harbor URC. And as, as I mentioned before, we are a church plant of uh, the Linden URC, which means that they are our overseeing church during this time 
in which we are a church plant. Many of you know Elder Scott Courtheis. He is ordinarily here with us twice a month with his wife, Ellen. He's an elder of the Linden URC. We're also a church plant within the URCNA, which is a, a federation of like-minded Reformed churches in uh, North America. If you have any uh, questions about who we are as a Reformed church plant, I would encourage you to reach out to myself or one of our, our local elders, um, John Witt or Tony Gilbert. This upcoming Wednesday is our next men's fellowship gathering. So this Wednesday at December, uh, December 14th at 7 p.m., at the Dottel's home here in Gig Harbor. I'll be sending out some more information in, in the coming days as well, but uh, this Wednesday at 7 p.m. at uh, John and Kathy Dottel's home here in Gig Harbor. As always, after this first main service, we will have a time of fellowship and refreshments, and then at about 11.15, we will begin our catechism service in which we continue our consideration through the Heidelberg Catechism, which is a faithful summary and exposition of some of the, the main truths that are revealed for us in, in Scripture. Well, you should have received both an order of worship as well as a Psalter hymnal on the way in. If you don't have either of those items, I would encourage you to pick them up on the back table We'll be making use of both of these items as we seek to worship our triune God, both in spirit and in truth. You'll notice that in your order of worship, there are certain portions that are set off in italicized print. This indicates the times during our worship service in which you, as the congregation, will actively be participating in the worship of our God. One other thing to note, I did change the invocation this Sunday. Uh, it's still a responsive reading, but it's, it's a bit different from our previous week, so I'll keep that in mind. Well, please stand for our call to worship, which comes from Matthew 24. Jesus says this to us this morning, Stay, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Pray to the Lord, wait for him, and be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. As you know, we are currently in the season of Advent. And Advent is the time of year in which the church seeks to reflect upon the first coming or first Advent of our Lord through consideration of, of various prophecies and promises of of the Old Testament, but it's also a time for us to consider the second advent of our Lord and particularly be reminded that we are a pilgrim people waiting for the appearing of our great and glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. And so this morning, Jesus calls us to stay awake, to be ready, and to pray as we anticipate the second advent of our Lord. And so let us read responsively as we ask that the Lord himself would be present among us this morning. Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Dwell among us and restore us with your steadfast love. Well, your God welcomes you this morning as he blesses you with his triune blessing. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and is to come 
and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. Well, please turn with me in your Psalter hymnals as we seek to praise our glorious God by turning to number 299. 299, we'll be singing verses 1 through 4. may be seated. Well, every Sunday we uh, turn to hear God's word, and we seek to hear both parts of God's word. God's word comes to us both as law and as gospel. And by law, we, we refer not to a particular era in redemptive history. Sometimes scripture refers to law as the law and the prophets, as the first five books of Moses. We're not using the word law here in this sense. Rather, we're using law in more of a a theological sense. We're using law to refer to the commandments of scripture, uh, the ethics of scripture, the imperatives of scripture. And we come across commands both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the commands that are binding upon us as New Covenant Christians, in fact, the commands that, uh, that are binding upon all people in every time and place are summarized in the Ten Commandments. And so this morning we will be considering the Fifth Commandment, and then we'll also see how the Apostle Peter applies this Fifth Commandment for us as New Covenant Christians. So hear now the law of our God. The fifth commandment says, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Apostle Peter then says, Be subject for the Lord's sake 
to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Well, the fifth commandment speaks to the honoring of authority figures in our life. Now, the fifth commandment itself speaks directly to the relationship between children and parents. But then as the Apostle Peter expands upon the fifth commandment, he broadens its scope. So the fifth commandment also speaks to uh, our, our honoring of civil magistrates, the emperor. Uh, Peter will go on to speak about how the fifth commandment uh, relates to our, our workplace, the economy, slaves, honor your masters, masters be benevolent to your servants. Paul, uh, Peter will address marital relationships, relationships between husbands and wives, and therefore the fifth commandment has a very broad scope. It speaks to all of our various relationships that we are in in this, this, this age. And so children, boys and girls, this, this commandment calls you to obey and respect your parents, even when they tell you to do something that you don't quite understand. You are called to obey them because they are, they are your parents. God has placed them over you. Those of you who are married, this relates to your marriage. We read elsewhere in scripture that husbands are called to lead and love their wife, not or wives, not in a domineering fashion, but in a way that mirrors Christ's self-sacrificial love and leadership as he laid down his life in order to purify his bride. Wives are called to uh, submit and respect their husbands. This also relates to your vocations. Many of you probably have authority figures in your common secular vocations, and you are called to honor them. Here, Peter also talks about honoring the emperor, which at this time was Nero, who was no friend to Christians, as many of us know. Now, when we hear this commandment, it's easy to honor those who are virtuous, those who are kind, those who are patient, those who are worthy of emulation. That's easy. But what's more difficult, what takes more wisdom, is when we have, a, is when we have authority figures over us who are not virtuous who are not worthy of, of emulation, those whom we may share very little in common when it comes to our deepest held convictions. How do we honor those individuals? Uh, this is really the question that we are called to wrestle with. Peter here calls the Christians to honor the emperor, which, again, as I said before, was, was Nero. And so I'd like us to consider, especially as we uh, think about our, how we engage in politics, how we engage in current events, I believe that Peter intends that the way in which we engage in such matters should be a witness to our watching world. Not just a witness to our Christian morals, but a witness to the fact that we are a pilgrim people. A witness to the fact 
that our ultimate trust and confidence is not in princes or kings or civil magistrates, but in God, the creator and sustainer of the heavens and the earth. And so is that true of you? Are you a witness? Are you salt and light to those around you based on how you honor the authority figures in your life? In summary, I love how our catechism explains this fifth commandment. It says that we are to bear, bear patiently with the failings of, of, of our authority figures since it is God's will that we should be governed by their hand. So let us hear this commandment that God speaks to us this morning and examine our hearts and confess the ways in which we have been negligent. The ways in which we have not honored those whom God has called us to honor. I'd like us to do this first by praying together the corporate prayer of confession, which is found in Psalm 38. And then we'll have a time to pray or confess our particular sins to our Heavenly Father. So please follow along with me in your order of worship as we pray, not only with our lips, but especially with our hearts, saying, O Lord, rebuke us not in your anger nor discipline us in your wrath. For our iniquities have gone over our heads. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for us. We are utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day we go about mourning. Our hearts throb, our strength fails us, and the light of our eyes, it also has gone from us. But for you, O Lord, do we wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. We confess our iniquity. We are sorry for our sin. Do not forsake us, O Lord. O our God, be not far from us. Make haste to help us, O Lord, our salvation. In this moment of silent confession, we bring you our particular sins. Please rise as we hear God speak over us this declaration of pardon, which comes to us from Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. And remember that for those of you in Christ, this is God's word of gospel, which he speaks particularly over you. The Apostle Paul says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Congregation of Christ, if you have confessed your sins and are trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf, you can be assured this morning, as I declare to you in the name of Jesus Christ and in the authority of the word of God, that you are no longer under God's condemnation and wrath, but are forever loved by him. Amen. 
Let's, let's respond with gratitude to this declaration by singing together the doxology, which is printed for you in your order of worship. Please remain standing and turn in your order of worship to the confession of faith element. This morning we are confessing together our Catholic, that is to say our universal Christian faith, using the words of the Nicene Creed. So we have been reciting the last a number of weeks the Apostles' Creed. And this creed is another statement of, of, of Catholic Trinitarian theology, which is very helpful for us to center our minds and hearts upon and to inform our worship of God. And so, Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven, and sits on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets, and I believe in one holy, catholic, and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. You may be seated. Well, when we celebrate the coming and incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we confess that Jesus did not begin to exist when he entered into this world in, in a manger. Rather, as we just recently confessed, Jesus is very God of very God, and therefore when he entered into human history, he did not hang up his divinity in the coat closet as it were, but he took upon himself a humanity for us and for our salvation. And it's because Jesus came in the flesh that we can have confidence in prayer as we bring before our Heavenly Father all of our prayers and petitions, which we will do so now. As always, we'll end this time of corporate prayer by praying together the Lord's Prayer, which is printed for you in your order of worship. So let us pray. Merciful Father, as we 
think about the coming of your son, Jesus Christ, during this, this time of, of Advent, we, uh, we're astounded that you would condescend to us in human flesh uh, for us and for our salvation. We thank you for Christ who not only came into this earth, not only took upon himself the mindset of a servant, but he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. He died the death that we deserve so that that curtain might be torn in two and that we might be able to boldly approach you in your throne of grace, that our prayers might be able to arise before you as, as sweet aroming incense in your nostrils. But we also thank you that uh, this great high priest ascended and is at your right hand and who and he lives now to make intercession for us his people and so in this moment we come before you as those who've been washed in the blood of Christ and those who plead the name of Christ asking that you would hear us for his sake O Lord we pray for your universal church which has indeed spread across this entire globe from that mustard seed uh, of, of the kingdom that it was uh, uh, 2,000 years ago. And we pray particularly for the work of missions uh, within the URCNA. We pray this morning for Reverend uh, Mihai Corsia as he labors as a missionary in Bucharest, Romania, a place and a land that is, that is very dark, uh, very little glimmer of, of gospel light existing there in in that country. And so we pray that you would encourage him in this labor. We pray particularly for growth in both faith and commitment for the recent visitors who have been attending their services. We pray for the covenant children and the young people that they might be strengthened in faith and, and persevere in a place where Christians are such a tiny minority. And we also pray that you would grant him wisdom and strength as he labors in the ministry of the word and prayer week in and week out. We pray that uh, that small congregation would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for our own local church. We give thanks for the Linden URC and, and their faithful oversight over us the last few years. We thank you for Elder Scott Courtheis and the many sacrifices uh, that he has made in order to shepherd this flock here in Gig Harbor. Uh, we thank you for Elder Witt and Gilbert and uh, the many hours and um, that they have labored to see this church plant continue to go on. Uh, we thank you for their love for this people and their commitment to your church. We pray that you bless them in, in their work. And we thank you for the people that you have gathered. Uh, we pray that you continue to grow this work, uh, continue to grow us all in the bonds of fellowship. We pray that you would provide for our needs as we look forward to the future. And we give thanks, much thanks, for how you have provided for us over the last few years. We pray for our civil magistrate, O oh Lord. We pray for uh, those men and women whom you've appointed to govern us in temporal affairs. We pray that they would seek to promote justice and peace within our lands. We pray that they would pursue the purposes and ends in which you have, have called them to. We ask that we as your people would be granted wisdom through your Holy Spirit, that we would be a people who would seek to honor everyone, including our magistrates, and that we would know uh, those times when we are to submit and honor and those times in which we are called to obey 
you rather than men. We also pray that you would be with this people uh, here in Gig Harbor. We lift before you the many needs that are upon our hearts. Uh, we pray for those who are struggling with various physical afflictions. Uh, we continue to pray for Noelle. Uh, we pray that you would uh, continue to help her to make progress against this disease and, and give wisdom to, to her doctors. We pray for Paul's wife, Mary, as she struggles with insomnia. Uh, we pray for Cheryl Minsonides as she uh, deals with um, this recent diagnosis of, of breast cancer. And we pray for her particularly this week as she has her next treatment of chemo. We pray that you would grant her strength. Uh, we pray that you give peace both to her and Sid. And we pray that we as a people would come around them during this time, uh, this time of trial. We pray for others among us who are struggling with physical afflictions. Uh, we pray for your healing power to be upon them. We pray that you would comfort them during this time. We pray for the families within our church plant. We pray for uh, the marriages. We pray for the relationships between parents and children. We ask that you grant us all grace to humbly consider others as more significant than ourselves. We pray for Bobby, who is currently in South, De uh, South Korea on deployment. We ask that you grant him what he stands in need of. We pray that you'd be with Candace as they are apart for these next, uh, these next few months. We pray for us in our common and secular vocations. We ask that we would see these vocations as legitimate callings from you, callings that you have given to us, not only to glorify your name, but to bless our neighbors all around us. And we pray that we would take these callings seriously, knowing that we, in these callings, are serving not merely men, but the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask that your spirit would be upon us and continue that work of sanctification. We pray that we would be a people who delight in walking according to your law in all manner of good works. We are astounded that you are a God who not only predestines and foreordains our salvation, but you are a God who has predestined all manner of good works that you have called us to walk in. And so we pray that we would walk in these good works that you have foreordained for us. We ask all of these things in the name of our faithful mediator and intercessor, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. As you know, last time we were together, we considered the significance of Jesus' death on the cross and how his death tore the curtain in the tabernacle, signifying that we now have open access to the creator of the heavens and the earth, and we can boldly approach him in his throne of grace. This morning, we will now be considering and turning our attention to Easter Sunday, Jesus' resurrection. So Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. Please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word given to us this morning. 
But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this morning. As I mentioned before, we are, as you know, currently in the season of Advent. And this is a season in which the church directs their attention upon the first coming of our Lord, which ordinarily means that this is the time where the church considers some of the the Old Testament promises and prophecies and types and shadows of the Old Testament. The church seeks to feel something of that Old Testament anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. But this season is also a time for us as New Covenant Christians to direct our minds to the second advent of our Lord. To remind ourselves that we are a pilgrim people, that this is not our ultimate home, but we are waiting with hopeful expectation for the return of our King and a time in which we will be in our homeland, as our citizenship truly is in that heavenly Jerusalem. Now, as we come to Luke 24, this chapter, of course, is not a traditional Advent chapter. In fact, this might seem like it has nothing to do with Advent. However, it does have quite a bit to say to how we are to wait with hopeful expectation for the second Advent of our Lord. This chapter is all about the resurrection of Christ. And it's this resurrected body of Christ that we encounter in Luke 24 that Jesus will have when he breaks through the clouds, as it were, and returns in his second coming. So the next few weeks, we are going to consider Luke 24 as a means of of preparing our hearts with hopeful expectation for the second advent and coming of our Lord. Well, this morning, what I'd like us to do as we consider these 12 verses is first we'll consider some of the reasons that this text presents for us for why we should believe in the resurrection. And then second, we'll consider one implication of the resurrection, which is connected to this season of advent. First, we are given a number of reasons 
in this text for why belief in the resurrection, resurrection is, is a, rational, a rational thing to do. Or to put it another way, there's a number of details in this text that tell us that this text is indeed an authentic account of Jesus' resurrection. You'll notice that this passage narrates for us that women were the first eyewitnesses of this empty tomb. So in verse 10, we read that it was Mary Magdalene and and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and and the other women who were the ones who very early in the morning on this first day of the week encountered this empty tomb. There was no body of Jesus. Now we know that in the ancient world, the testimony of women would not have been heard in either Jewish or Roman courts. They had no grounding. As one very prominent New Testament scholar has pointed out, there must have been a lot of pressure upon the gospel writers, and particularly Luke, as we're considering Luke's gospel here. There would have been a lot of pressure upon the gospel writers not to include this detail, that women were the first eyewitnesses of this empty tomb. So if the disciples were writing some fabrication, trying to create some some new religion, it wouldn't make much sense for them to narrate women being the first witnesses of the empty tomb. Now remember, remember the opening of Luke's gospel. Back in Luke chapter 1, verses 1, verses 3 and 4, Luke says this. He says that it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. Luke's goal in writing this gospel was to provide not only Theophilus, but the Christian church an orderly (coughs) historical account of the life of Christ. And as a consequence, he includes this detail that women were the first eyewitnesses, which is compelling evidence that this is an authentic account of Jesus' resurrection. Now, if you recall from last time we were together in Luke chapter 23, we read at the end of that chapter that these women had prepared spices for the body of our Lord on on the evening of, of Good Friday. And then they rested on the Sabbath day according to the commandment. Now, in Luke chapter 24, we learn that very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, these women take uh, their spices that they've prepared and they go to Jesus' tomb. And to their shock, they find that the, the, the stone has been rolled away and there's no body. Now, these women likely did not immediately think, resurrection, Jesus is alive. They probably thought to themselves, how could things get any worse? This Jesus, whom we thought was going to be the savior of the Jewish people, is dead, and more than that, his body is gone. We can't even give him a proper burial. How could things get get, get even worse? But they have. 
Immediately upon their discovery of this empty tomb, we read that these two men, these two angels, show up in dazzling apparel. This word for dazzling is, is a word for lightning. It's used other times to refer to the scene of when Jesus returns and there will be bolts of lightning. Now, what is the response of these women to these, these angels? Does it strike within them these, these warm, fuzzy feelings of comfort? They're terrified. In fact, throughout Scripture, when people encounter angels, they're not comforted. They're terrified because these are holy beings. We read that they bow their faces to the ground, and the angels then speak to them and say, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. They then go on to say, remember, remember, call to mind the words that Jesus told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. These angels are are telling these women, this shouldn't surprise you. Jesus himself told you on multiple occasions that he was going to have to suffer, to die, and to rise again. We considered uh, chapters ago on a number of these occasions when Jesus said these things to his disciples, how Jesus was telling his disciples to take off the spectacles of their own assumptions and to put on the spectacles of the cross and the resurrection. Unless the angels are saying the same thing. They're saying, remember, remember the message of Christ that he spoke to you on multiple occasions. Scripture itself predicted the resurrection of Christ. What this tells us then is that the resurrection doesn't come out of left field in Luke 24. Rather, it's thematically coherent, not only with the message of Christ, but also with the message of the Old Testament. We read prophecies in the Old Testament about the resurrection of our Lord. The psalmist on multiple occasions speaks about how this this greater uh, son of David will not only die but rise again. Think of Psalm 22 and Psalm 16. Isaiah talks about how this servant of the Lord will prosper in the hand of the Lord Lord, after he he, uh, suffers the penalty for his people's sins. So in this passage we see that scripture predicts the resurrection of the Lord, which is a great assurance for us. Now, what do these women do after they encounter these angels? Well, we read that they are overjoyed. They go back to the 11 apostles, and they share with them the message that they heard from these, from these men. And what is the reaction of the apostles? They say, this is an idle tale. And the Greek word that's used here is the word that was used oftentimes in, in, in the ancient world to refer to delirium. It was a medical term. They thought that these women were delirious. They're speaking nonsense. This is an idle tale. They don't know what they're talking about. We saw Jesus hanging lifeless on that tree. Now, how is this evidence or a reason for why we should believe in the resurrection. Well, one author I was reading this week talks about how there's a common notion today, which I think is, is, is correct, a common notion today where, whereby we as moderns can look upon 
those in the ancient world as simple-minded, unenlightened uh, people who uh, had a, a very mystical, um, um, enchanted view of the universe, and thus they far too easily imputed supernatural causation to things that we know today would have natural causes. So this view would look at the demon-possessed the gospel. All those people weren't really demon-possessed. They had mental illnesses. But we as moderns, we're enlightened. We're scientific. And if we were in the ancient world, we would be able to find natural causes to many of these things. They're credulous while we are enlightened. However, a number of New Testament scholars have noted that the resurrection was arguably just as difficult to believe in the ancient world as it is for us to believe today, but for different reasons. So, for instance, if you look at the Greco-Roman world of, of, of the classical period, particularly the first century, they believed that the human person consisted of both a body and a soul, but the soul was good and the body was bad. The dualistic view of the body and the soul. As a consequence, they conceived of salvation as a liberation of the soul from the body. The body was like this, this drug or this heavy coat that weighed down the soul. What people looked forward to then was the liberation of the soul from the body. Now you told, if you would tell a Greek or a Roman that your future hope is a future bodily resurrection, they would scratch their head and say, how is that good news? My hope is in the liberation of the soul from the body. They didn't have a category for a future bodily resurrection. But when you look at the Jewish world, they believed at this time of a, of a common general resurrection from the dead on the, on the last day. However, this resurrection from the dead would simultaneously include the consummation of the new creation. A time when evil and sin would be eradicated and justice would reign and the knowledge of the Lord would, would cover the earth as the waters of the sea. So the Jews did not have a category for one man rising from the dead without the new creation being fully consummated and sin and evil persisting. They wouldn't have a category for that. And so those in the ancient world would have found belief in Jesus' resurrection, especially how Jesus experienced his resurrection, difficult to embrace, just as many today find the resurrection difficult to embrace, just for different reasons. And so the fact that the disciples don't immediately embrace the resurrection shows us that they probably didn't have a category for the type of resurrection that Jesus experienced. But the fact that they go on to embrace this, even die for this Jesus, is good evidence that Jesus did literally leave that tomb. Remember, our faith includes knowledge, assent, and trust. When we embrace Jesus by faith, we are not doing so with the absence of, of, of evidence. So this passage gives us a number of details that witnesses to the authenticity of this account. Women were the first witnesses. Scripture itself predicts Christ's resurrection. And we see that the disciples didn't immediately embrace um, the, the, the women's message. Now I'd like us to transition and, and consider, you know, if, if the resurrection is indeed true, what is the implications 
of this resurrection. And this morning, we'll just consider one implication briefly. Look with me at, at verse 1 of Luke 24. On the first day of the week. Now, this is a phrase that's very easy to gloss over. Okay, on the first day of the week, Jesus rose from the dead. However, this phrase is, is life-altering. It's calendar-changing. It's something that we should not merely gloss over. It's extremely significant. What I'd like to do is to briefly situate this phrase within the context of the Old Testament. So remember in creation, in creation Genesis 1 and 2, we encounter a God who is a working, resting God. He works six days and rests on the seventh day. And he makes mankind in, in his image, meaning we are made in the image of the working and resting God. Now this structures the life of mankind, both on a micro level and on a macro level. So on a micro level, this tells us that our days, our weeks, our months, our years are to be patterned with this rhythm of literally working and literally resting. But on a macro level, this teaches us that in order to enter into God's seventh-day Sabbath rest, in order to earn heaven, perfect work and obedience must be completed. Well, we know that Adam fails on this macro level. He isn't able to perfectly obey God, and thus he's banished from Eden. But this Sabbath principle remains. Subsequently, then Israel is given the Sabbath principle as well. And for Israel, the Sabbath principle reminded them both of the law and of the gospel. And so Israel was called to celebrate seventh-day Sabbaths. And insofar as Israel celebrated the Sabbath on the seventh day, this reminded them of God's law. And God's law, what I mean by it reminding them of God's law, is not just that it's a particular commandment. It's the fourth commandment and the ten commandments. No, what I mean is that it reminded them of the principle of law. Every time Israel worked six days and then rested on the seventh day, it reminded them that the law, the law that's written upon their hearts, tells them, do this and you shall live. Meaning, in order to enter God's rest, in order to earn heaven, work needs to be completed. They were reminded of that principle every week as they worked first and then they rested. Every time they followed this weekly pattern, they would have Eden echoing and ringing in their ears. However, Israel also had a number of first-day Sabbaths, or first-year Sabbaths. The Feast of Weeks was a festival or Sabbath that was celebrated on the first day of the week. It was a time to celebrate liberty from slavery in Egypt, a time to have a holy convocation, a time to rest. The Year of Jubilee was celebrated every 50th year. They would count out seven times seven years, which would get you to 49 years. Day after that perfect number, you would have this year of Jubilee. And this year of Jubilee was a time in which slaves were set free, a time in which debts were forgiven, a time in which uh, if, if land had been previously sold, it was returned to the previous owner. And when Israel celebrated these first year or first day Sabbaths, it reminded them of God's covenant of grace. It reminded them of the gospel. When Israel celebrated these first day or first year Sabbaths, they would have the Abrahamic promises ringing in their ears. 
These promises that God gave to Abraham were promises in which God testified that he would take initiative in bringing his people, not just the land of Canaan, but to what the land of Canaan symbolized, which was heaven itself. Therefore, when we come to Luke chapter 24 and we read on the first day of the week, Jesus rose from the dead. What we see is that Jesus was fulfilling both of these Old Testament Sabbaths. He rose from the dead on the, on the day after the last seventh day Sabbath, showing that he was the second Adam. He was the better Israel. Remember, Israel wasn't even able to obey well enough to maintain life in the earthly land of Canaan, which represented heaven. This taught them that they were extremely insufficient and unable to earn heaven itself. And so they needed a better Israel. And so Jesus is that better Israel who perfectly obeys God and earns heaven, earns God's rest on a macro level. But Jesus also fulfills those first day or first year Sabbaths. He is the fulfillment of that liberty and redemption which Israel celebrated uh, in the year of Jubilee on the Feast of Weeks. So this phrase is not arbitrary. It's very intentional. Uh, God is very intentional in raising Jesus on the first day of the week. Jesus here is reordering our calendars instituting a new holy day, a new Sabbath. Remember, Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. And he's giving his people, his new covenant people, a new holiday to celebrate. Now, as I mentioned before, every time Israel worked six days and rested the seventh, it reminded them of what it means to be made in the image of God. We have God's law written upon our hearts. As a consequence, we know by nature this principle of do this and live, which is one of the reasons why we feel the guilt of sin. However, when we rest on the first day of the week and work out of that rest, it's a reminder of what it means to be remade into the image of Christ. When we are remade in the image of Christ, we enter Christ's rest initially, and then we are remade into his likeness. The Lord's Day, then, on Sunday, is a tangible reminder of the gospel. It has a sacramental nature to it. Every time we rest and worship on Sunday and work out of that rest, it's a reminder of what it means to be a Christian. It reminds us that we have not earned our salvation, but Christ has earned it for us, and we obey out of gratitude. It reminds us that 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 principle of do this and live is no longer operative for us as those who are in Christ, but rather the message that we hear is live and do this. And so let Sundays be a tangible reminder to you, testimony to you of the rest that Jesus invites you into. Jesus says in Matthew 11, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. That's the whole point of Sundays. This is why the Lord's Day is not a law that's meant to be legalistically observed, but rather a gift to be celebrated. The Lord's Day is all about what Jesus has done in his first advent. It's a reminder of who we are as those who are needy sinners 
desperate for the grace of God. And so in this season, as we think about the advent of our Lord, one of the purposes of celebrating the first advent, or one of the purposes of celebrating the Lord's Day, I should say, is, is to be reminded of what Jesus accomplished in his first advent, the rest that Jesus has accomplished for us. Furthermore, one of the main ways in which we anticipate Jesus' second coming is through celebrating this holy day which Christ has instituted for us. Let us pray. Merciful Father, we thank you that Christ did not remain in that grave, but rather he, he conquered death and hell and rose from the dead on the first day of the week. We thank you for the salvation. We thank you for the rest that we receive through this work of Christ. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would comfort us with this declaration of your gospel. We pray that, that the tangible rhythm of working, of resting on the first day of the week and working out of that rest the next six days would be a means of assuring and comforting us of, of what Jesus has done for us who are needy and sinful beings. We ask all these things in his name. Amen. Well, please rise as we seek to respond to this word which we have heard by turning to number 311. Hark the herald angels sing. We'll be singing stanzas one through three.
You may be seated. This time we seek to continue to respond to the word which we have heard by giving of our offerings, trusting and praying that the Lord would use these gifts to continue to advance his kingdom here on earth. Please rise as we continue to praise our God using the words of the Gloria Patri, which is also printed for you in your order of worship. Receive now God's blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift upon you his countenance and give you peace. Amen. As a reminder, we will now have a time of fellowship and refreshments. And then at about 11.15, we will gather again for our catechism service. So please enjoy. How are you?